0: Uh, if perchance we haven't met, my name's John. I'm a pastor here along with uh, Pastor Sam, who you met uh, this morning. And we're in the midst of a sermon series taking us through some highlights in the book of Acts. Uh, the, uh, uh, Luke, the person who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And Acts isn't just... Um, Kind of a a second standalone book to the first book Luke wrote, the the gospel. It's really the things that Jesus began to do while he was with us. That's what the gospel of Luke is about. And Acts is really about the things that Jesus continued to do by the power of the Holy Spirit through his followers. And I think that's made very evident in what Jesus told his disciples right before his ascension. Remember, he said, after kind of giving them all the practical instructions, he said, now I've told you all the stuff. Don't do anything. Just, just wait until you receive the gift that I've told you about. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus said this, quote, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You see, Jesus continues his ministry from heaven today in the same way he put the gospel in motion way back then by the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, working in and through his followers. So that's what we continue to think about today. As as we've seen already, the early church began to grow very quickly. We'll talk about that a bit more in a second. But as could be expected, the church experienced some growing pains. And we come across one of those in the passage for today. Let's listen to that now.
1: I'll be reading from Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, honey. That's my wife. (laughs) She's pretty great. (laughs) So the the growth of the early church uh, was very rapid. Just look at a quick survey of references in the book of Acts. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church grew from about 120 to 3,120 in one day. 26 times in one day it grew. That's Acts 2. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The end of Acts 2. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So now we're at 5,000 men and households, you know, now we're what, 10,000, a little more than that? Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The church was just growing so rapidly. And of course, what we read today, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, it was growth on all fronts, right? The, the church was growing very quickly. One, one of the things I really appreciate about the scripture is that it doesn't gloss over problems and challenges, you know, the hard things that we encounter in life, being the fallen people we are. Um, if, if you want evidence of this, just look at 1 Corinthians again, right? That, that church was a dumpster fire. I mean, there was so much going on. There was division in the church as to who the real leaders were. There was a case of incest among church leaders. People in the church were suing each other. There was a misunderstanding of the, the nature of the freedom that we have in Christ. And so some people were arguing, hey, I can have sex with whoever I want because I'm free and what I do in my body doesn't matter. I mean, sexual immorality was a huge issue. Some of them claimed to possess a special spiritual gift of knowledge, and they were trying to elevate themselves above other believers. Back then, the Lord's Supper was an actual dinner, and the whole church would come to that dinner and celebrate together, and there was an issue of the, the more wealthy people in the church showing up early and getting sloshed before the average working joes could make it to the meal, and then it was just anarchy, right? And the Apostle Paul has to address that. Like, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Don't, don't, and that's, that's when he wrote this famous verse, don't eat and drink condemnation on yourself, right? Don't come to the Lord's Supper and use it in a completely inappropriate way. This, this is not what the Lord intended. So uh, anyway, th- the point in all of this is that I take the fact that the Bible includes all this mess as strong evidence for its authenticity and reliability because... Who makes up that kind of stuff as an argument to convince other people to hop on the Jesus train? Nobody. I mean, this just rings true. You know you. I know me. We've lived in this world a little bit. It's a mess. And when you get people together, stuff falls apart. Right? Save Judaism. Every other spiritual belief or overarching philosophy I've encountered feels way too glossy to be real. The Bible does not gloss over the challenges that emerged as the gospel encountered real people living real lives and encountering real problems. It just rings true. At least it does for me. And we get one of those problems in the passage It's a growing pain. As more and more people were becoming followers of Jesus, there were more and more problems in the church for the simple reason that all of us bring our problems and brokenness with us when we come into the church. And we have to deal with that. We don't, we can't clean ourselves up before coming to Jesus. Instead, Jesus begins cleaning us up after we come to him. So please hear that if you're considering faith in Jesus and you've been wondering when you'll feel good enough to pull the trigger, you never will, none of us ever do. This is relying entirely on God's grace to forgive us in our brokenness and wrongdoing. That's the thing. Therefore, the pattern of things is not behave first, clean yourself up and get stuff all aligned, then believe, then belong to the larger body of Christ, that's not the way this works. It's more like this, belong, meaning come into relationship with serious followers of Jesus so that you have some friendship. Then come to a place of believing, of trusting in Jesus, believing that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, actually. And after that, we are engaged by the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification. That's the 25 cent word that basically means God by his spirit works in us to make us more and more like Jesus throughout our lives. And I don't know how you experience that, but sometimes that's like a, 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 a nails on the chalkboard, right, in my soul. It's a growing process. It's hot. There's friction because God is at work filing stuff off and sometimes it doesn't feel good. Most of the time it doesn't feel good. But that's what's happening. The living Lord is refining us to make us more like Jesus. So here's the problem back to that, that they encountered. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic or Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Uh, Back then, the church had organized uh, uh, to kind of support the widows in their midst. And they had kind of like a Meals on Wheels program because the only way the widows would be supported was either by family members who were supporting them, or if they were alone, they would be dependent upon the charity of their community. So the church was organized uh, to do this, and the Hellenistic uh, uh, Jewish folks who had become Christians and were in the church were complaining that their widows were being overlooked in this Meals on Wheels thing, so that's the problem. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller wrote a really good book called generous justice. If you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. It's it's really good. In in the book he shares about a struggle he had in his college years back in the sixties. It was the, during the time of civil rights, the civil rights movement, he became very interested in, in that and and was rather astonished uh, that, quote, so something so unjust as segregation could be so easily rationalized by an entire society. And he was just in how, how did this happen? He, he just wanted to figure this out. And it was during that season of his life that he began to become rather disillusioned uh, in his Christian faith for the reason that he saw a big disconnect between secular friends who supported the civil rights movement and some people he considered kind of orthodox Christian believers who kind of looked at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, as a threat to society. And he couldn't, he couldn't reconcile this. Gladly, he didn't bail on the whole thing. He dug deeper. And as he dug deeper into the faith, he really came to some realizations. But his driving question was this. Why, I wondered, did the non-religious people believe so passionately in equal rights and justice while the religious people, I knew, could not have cared less? Maybe some of us have had those wonderings if you're wrestling with the faith. Dr. Keller would go on to have a breakthrough in understanding, which which I understand to be true uh, with regard to biblical Christianity. He realized that actually the Old and New Testaments are the foundation of the Western world's understanding of human rights. And the deeper you dive, the more you realize that our faith demands of us that we take a, a a justice-making posture in in the world, right? And and Dr. Keller went on to realize that when a person places their trust in Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit enables us uh, not only to understand what Christ has done for us, but the result is a drastic increase in concern for people, for other people. People in general, yes, and especially for people who are are poor or marginalized in some way, kind of on the outs, societally. There's this special heart that that grows in followers of Jesus by the presence of the Spirit. And and we see that concern for people that's Spirit-empowered in the text from this morning. Again, situation, church is growing really fast. Uh, The church was organized around this Old Testament principle to care for the widows because of what I shared earlier. But a complaint arose. Some of the the Greek Jewish folks who had become Christians said, hey, our widows are being overlooked. What's going on here? Now, as you read the text, there doesn't seem to be any accusation of intent. It's not like somebody was sitting in an office somewhere thinking, hey, hey, hey let's overlook the Greek widows. It, it wasn't that. It seems there was some unintentional, a, a systemic thing. A shortcoming. Somehow the system was failing to treat people equally. Some kind of implicit bias at work. Right? This passage, by the way, is the story of the calling of the first deacons. I hope that you know that. Those seven people who were called were the, were the first deacons. And, and often, at least as I've heard this story recounted in the past, we often focus on the division of labor issue like, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on, so we need more people to help, so let's make some deacons and they can help. That is true. I mean, as the church grows, we have to empower more people to help lead. But the primary issue in this passage was not a division of labor issue. It was a justice issue around ethnic discrimination. That was the problem. That there were many more Hebrew Jewish people in Jerusalem than there were Greek Jewish people, all who had become Christians now. And as the Hebraic Jews quarterbacked the distribution of food, they were somehow more attuned to the needs of the Hebrew widows. You know, they might have known them. They were, might have been in their relational network. They didn't know as well the folks who had moved to town at some point, right? So you can see it just kind of unfolding. They were more in touch with the Hebrew Jewish widows than the Greek Jewish widows. And an issue of injustice was identified in the early church. Here's what the apostles did. So the twelve gathered all the, all the disciples together, and we're talking thousands of people now, right? And said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now don't, don't misunderstand the waiting on tables thing. That's not the, the 12 apostles saying this was a lesser duty that was, that was somehow below them. They were saying that the church as a whole should share in leading the larger ministry of Jesus in different areas, different functions, that kind of thing. And notice what they didn't do. The apostles did not ignore the problem. The apostles did not receive the complaint and somehow discount it as if it weren't, weren't really a significant claim. They didn't do those things. And once the apostles had proposed a solution to the problem, they did not pick the new leaders. Did you catch that? The the church picked the leaders. The apostles said, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They gave some parameters. Needs to be clearly a person who's guided by the Holy Spirit and they need to demonstrate wisdom in their interactions with others but if those two qualifications are met, go nuts, pick people to lead this thing. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The church called its leaders. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's what we try to do in our nomination system every year. Because that is how things work best when a community of Christ followers is functioning in a healthy way. The congregation calls her leaders. This is how things have worked in the church. So the church did call its leaders in these first seven deacons, but there's more to that. Something that you could read right over and, and maybe miss. All seven names of the leaders chosen are Greek names, not Hebrew names. Well, isn't that interesting? The Greek widows were the ones being overlooked. Some Greek Christians brought this issue to the forefront. The apostles recognized it as a problem and proposed a new structure of leadership while realizing their need to stay focused on their areas of calling. The church picked seven Greek leaders, qualified, full of the spirit, and wise, from among themselves to take over the daily distribution of food. I mean, do you see what happened here? Full of the spirit and wise. But beyond that, they very likely empowered some of those, maybe even who brought the complaints. Those who were able to see the injustice clearly with the understanding that they would be able to lead the daily distribution of of food in a more equitable way. And that's what everybody wanted. So why would we not empower these folks to go and lead this thing like Jesus would? That's exactly what they did. Go lead this thing like Jesus would. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of the apostles not powering up and trying to control everything. It's a beautiful picture of the church trusting that the Lord actually gives gifts to the whole church and raises people up to function in different kind of ways. You see, every problem in the church represents an opportunity for a kingdom-like response. Isn't that a great thing? I wish we had some problems. (laughs) Every problem in the church represents an opportunity for a kingdom-like response. And when spirit-filled wise leaders slowly, just one little response at a time, try their best as being led by the spirit to respond in kingdom-like ways, a community of Christ followers becomes healthier, not only within, but in mission, in, in going out, Right And that, that was the result back then, too. Look, look. So the word of God spread. I take the word "so" to mean, based on that whole thing that just happened. So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith, which was stunning, because most of the priests were of the Sadducee class, right? They were the ones in power. Right, so for them to come to faith was kind of laying down everything they had and coming to Jesus, which is really the call for all of us, right? I hope you know that. We're not gathered here today so that I can say some stuff and you can take a little spiritual slice to make your life easier or better for today or the week. I mean, we're, we're called together to learn how to more completely die to ourselves, more, more fully lay down our lives for the last, the least, and the lost. That's what we're doing here, right? The apostles knew they were called to ministries of word, meaning preaching and teaching. They also knew that wise, spirit-filled leaders, sensitive to the issues in their areas of leadership, were critical for the advancement of the ministry of Jesus in the world. This was an organizing of the church around the great commandment and the great commission. Remember the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The second is like it like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Great commission, make disciples. Love God, love people, make disciples. If you want to know what you're supposed to do in this world as a follower of Jesus, it is that simple. And it is in that order love God, love people, make disciples. For me, what the apostles did here uh, is both faith filled and very wise. And you see echoes of it in scripture, right? uh, The apostle Paul kind of detailed some of this kind of approach in Ephesians 4 when he talks about the way God gives certain types of ministry function to different people. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness in Christ. Now, while I don't believe that there are modern day apostles in the sense of the office, you know, I think there were 12 apostles and I think that's it. I do think God equips people to function in apostolic ways In, in entrepreneurial leadership, the whole visionary, we're gonna take that hill, this is why and this is how we're gonna do it. I do believe God equips people to function in prophetic ways, which means listening to the Lord on behalf of the larger church or on behalf of other people for their encouragement and their building up. I mean, God seems to call people to function in lanes, in functions. And then there are spiritual gifts in addition to that. You know, the apostles knew they were called to function in the lane of, of ministries of word and, and proclamation and, and prayer. And they stayed in their lane, Right? They knew God calls other Christians to function in different ways. When followers of Jesus identify their gifts and begin serving in the lanes to which God has called them, the word of God spreads. The number of disciples increases. And in this way, the church organizes for mission in a very tangible kind of way. You know, no, no longer, no more super Christians delivering ministry to believers. That's not a biblical view of church at all. But the whole church. Activated by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the gifts God gives to each of us. And God does give gifts to each of us. You're not left out of that. Every Christ follower is given gifts. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. There's been a grace given to you, a gifting. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. What a, what a beautiful God has equipped the church. That's us. And when we function in this way, we organize for mission. Different functions, different gifts, grace given to all. No one without a gift or function. All for the building up of the church as a community of missionaries in the world. To go, you know, love God, love people, make disciples in this world that God so loves and that's not just a religious idea, right? We believe that God is a person, not a religious thought. We believe that God loves this world, every person in it, and wants everybody to come home to God. So if you haven't done that yet in your life, please know you're invited. As a church, we confess we are imperfect We mess stuff up. If you show up here, you're going to see our brokenness and our failures. Gladly, the church is not our model for church. Jesus is our model for church. We have a target. We're heading that way and hopefully humbly. But let not the brokenness of human beings deter you from following Jesus. Our brokenness simply confirms the basic message of the Bible that we're all messed up and need help. None of us stands alone in that. The apostles were setting the stage for a gift-based ministry from the very beginning, taking a problem and turning it into an opportunity through a kingdom-like response. We have the opportunity to do that, not just in the church, I would argue, but in each of our lives when problems arise. We may see them as an opportunity for a kingdom-like response, a Jesus-shaped response. May the Lord help us in those challenges. They are many and difficult. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the, the earthiness of the Bible. Thank you that our our spiritual book doesn't gloss over the really hard problems of real life. Uh, it gives us hope that you know about our hard problems, our, our challenges, our struggles. So Lord, in this moment, we, um, we, we want to pull back the curtain that we might have been trying to keep closed before you and allow you in fully, everywhere, everywhere, Please come and have your way in us. Do your work in us. We want to be more like Jesus. Help us, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.